0: Welcome everyone to Historia, a podcast dedicated to the study of history and culture. I am your host, David Williams. Let's get started. All right, today we have uh, Matthew Van Meter with us. Matthew is a writer and he's also a director of uh, Shakespeare in Prison. Matthew's most recent work is the book Deep Delta Justice, which is what we're talking about today. And this book really blew me away. I was telling Matthew earlier that when I started listening to the audio book, I was out driving around, and I was listening just to a library download of it, and 20 minutes into the book, I stopped pulled into a parking lot, pulled out my uh, phone and bought the audiobook from Audible and the Kindle version from Amazon because it really is that good. So I wanted him to come on here and talk about this. This is sort of from my neck of the woods. I mean, it's a few hundred miles away, but my, my home state here. And it's the most fascinating civil rights case I've never heard of. So Matthew, talk to us about Deep Delta Justice, what it's about, uh, why you wanted to write it. Uh, so tell us about your book.
1: Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, David. I really appreciate it. And I and appreciate the kind words too about the, um, about the book, you know, it was something that, uh, I, I always felt found the story really compelling, but, um, you know, obviously like taking a, a compelling real life story and turning it into compelling nonfiction is, is, uh, uh, is, is its own challenge. So, um, yeah, I, you know, I stumbled into the story when I was uh, in graduate school at Columbia. I had been reporting on criminal justice issues in New York City um, just because that's where I was at and uh, ended up sort of stumbling into a law school class at the at the law school there partly so I could have better conversations with the lawyers I was interviewing and and. Uh, you know, basic criminal procedure class, and they covered the right to jury trial. They talked; the professor talked about Duncan versus Louisiana, which is the the case at the center of this book. And I thought it was great. I thought it was, um, you know, it was really this this compelling story. And, and the I think the version I heard was was pretty short, and it was about a nineteen year old black uh, tugboat captain who, uh, you know, saw his. Uh, You know, two of his relatives who were, you know, middle schoolers walking down the side of the road about to get jumped by four of their white classmates um, down in Plaquemines Parish, kind of at the end of the Mississippi River. Um, The schools had just been desegregated. Racial tensions were really high. This is in the mid-60s. And so Gary uh, got out of his car and and sort of broke up the fight, put his hand on the arm of one of the white kids um, and wound up getting arrested and charged with battery and battery. uh, rather than lying down and taking it sort of like he was supposed to, uh, he lawyered up and found this guy, Richard Sobel, who was 29 at the time and sort of a hot shot out of Columbia Law School, who had just uh, kind of quit his fancy, uh, uh, you know, prestigious law firm job in Washington, D.C. to take civil rights cases in the South. And the two of them together, Gary Duncan and Richard Sobel, fought that um you know, little misdemeanor case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court on on basically a technicality, you know, and, and then the other the third, uh, you know, sort of central character is this guy, Leander Perez, who uh, who ran Plaquemines Parish and. Um, Lived with a, with an iron fist for about fifty years, I mean he was completely uh, his power was totally unquestioned, and uh, he was referred to quite seriously as the third house of the Louisiana legislature. I mean, really was one of the one of the architects of the system of laws that we now call Jim Crow um, within the state of Louisiana, and, you know, and probably one of the three or four most prominent segregationists at the time, you know, from in the, in the 50s and 60s, you know, and, and so he was, you know, he was sort of the, the ruler of Gary Duncan's home, um, and, and sort of the primary antagonist in the, in the story. And I just thought the story was great. Um, so I went to see who wrote the book about it, because I wanted to read that book, And and no one had written that book, so um, pretty much dropped everything and and uh, started work on Deep Delta Justice. And that was, uh, gosh, it was five and a half years ago now. Oh wow, that's a lot of work.
0: Yeah, yeah, uh,
1: yeah. I mean, it started out. I I was I was really lucky. I was in graduate school for creative writing at the time, so I had the I had the, the time and space to to work on it. Was in my first year of that program. Um, and so I was able to focus on the, um, on doing the research and reporting I needed to create a book proposal, um, and, and take my time with it within the structure of that, of that program. So the, the timing really couldn't have been any better, but I, you know. Uh, and then you know started going down to New Orleans in 2015, um, and made I, th- I think the the last time I was down there was right before COVID was was for Mardi Gras, and you know I was I think that was my 18th trip uh, to to New Orleans, so it was I was really lucky I was able to you know very much kind of embed down there and and really get to know the people I was writing about, um, which which is really important to me as a as a reporter and as a writer.
0: Fascinating people down there. I, I've been down in that that uh, part of the state before, and it's uh, a lot of fascinating individuals.
1: Yeah, a lot of a lot of individuals. Yes. Uh, <laughs> that's for sure.
0: Yeah. Um, um, no, it's. I
1: mean, it's totally fascinating. To me, and i have never been there uh, before, so you know, sort yeah. of Yankee. So it was uh, additionally <laughs> fascinating.
0: The uh, I think the line that convinced me to buy the book was when you said. Uh right there in the, in the beginning of the first chapter. If politics is a game, Louisiana politics is a blood sport, and Leander Perez was its reigning champion. Now, once again, if someone from who's from Louisiana, I have, you know, blood sport, yeah, I've actually stood in the Capitol building next to the bullet holes in the wall where Huey Long was assassinated. <laughs> so, I mean it, it very much is, and uh we have some we have some very uh unpleasant history in, in my state. Uh to say to say the least and Perez one one hell of a character I mean at one level you know the way you write about him it's 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 interesting because you don't make him out to be Satan incarnate by that what I mean is you do show that he did a lot for the people of Plaquemines. I mean, I think sometimes people forget about that, that a lot of these corrupt bosses stayed in power a long time because they did a lot for the people. I, it's one of the things, when folks talk about Huey Longham, I remember stories that people of my great-grandparents' generation used to tell. And, yeah, they knew Huey was corrupt, but Huey was corrupt and built the roads as opposed to the guys before who were corrupt and didn't build the roads. So, you know, there, there was a, almost this allowance that, in Louisiana, we've always, almost, always had this idea that Politics is supposed to be corrupt. It's just a matter of what you get out of which corrupt person. Totally. Um, it seems to be changing. I I, I feel like, but um, not not near what it used to be. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, Perez. What a, what a
1: what a man. yeah. I mean, he's and, and Perez is a mixed figure too, right? Where where and and I'm not I'm not excusing his his conduct, but no, I, no, I, I no. think <laughs> I think I initially really focused on and this is pretty common I, you know particularly somebody of my my background you know I grew up in the northeast and um, and you know I have certain certain ideas about the about the deep south and also uh you know a, a, like certain reaction to to people who who speak like Perez does, and he yes. he delighted in breaking norms and saying things that everybody else had, and even the segregationists had learned not to say at that point. Because and he, he was you know, and that right. was part of what made him popular among among white folks anyway. But the, you know the the reality of it is much more complicated than that. And and one of the things that was really important to me that I learned, and I hope this comes across in the book, although I, I don't think I state it directly, it's, it's more of a feeling. Is you know I, I interviewed dozens and dozens of people down in, in Plaquemines, and um, for the most part, you know, white folks re- recalled. You know, that nobody was at least you know certainly to a reporter was going to openly support Perez. You know, a hundred percent, fifty years after his death. But um, but I'll, but I'll say this: white white folks in Plaquemines for the most part kind of remember with a cringe. The the language he used um, that was um, you know partic- shockingly I would say um, virulently racist and, and bigoted. Um, not one black person in Blackman's parish in an interview led with that when talking to me. Few of them even really mentioned it. They were much more concerned with the laws that Perez passed that were designed to deny them their constitutional rights. Right. And so for me, that was, you know, and it took me a while to get that through my, my skull that like, really there was like, what was, it was much more important to look at what Perez did and, and, you know, people in Plaquemines, black and white of a certain age, all remember a lot of the um because he had these sort of protectionist policies that were in, really were intended to enrich i mean himself but also the the parish and i think in louisiana especially at the time um that was not seen but by, by anybody as as you know the, the idea of perez enriching himself you know was was seen as kind of normal sort of what politicians do right, right yeah and,
0: unfortunately uh, yeah
1: yeah, sorry and it's, it's what you said right where the like the they're all corrupt it's it's all about what you get out of it and and you know and he you know he really strong armed those oil companies pretty ruthlessly and forced them to pay for public works um, uh you know including things that are that are really rare I mean I so I grew up in you know, a bunch of places in the rural Northeast. And so, like, I know how unusual it is in the, you know, backwoods area to to have things like, when they had like municipal sewerage and stuff, and yeah. a free bus system, and the ferries were free. The fer- ferries were free until a couple of years ago, you know, and all of that was paid for, subsidized by the oil industry, and all of that is because, not because they wanted to, it was because Perez forced them to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, he had all the power, um, and I sort of detail in the book how he got that power through, you know, sort of a, a you know, hide the ball game with, with, uh, um, you know, land leases and min- mineral leases and things like that down in the marsh. But, you know, really he was sort of a genius at, at, at and so detail oriented about the law. Um, and when, when he used his powers for good, he was, uh, he did a lot of good. I mean, honestly, like the, <laughs> Um, most men, especially in Plaquemines over the age of 60 or 70, uh, will, will say that, that, that one of the things that makes them unable to, uh, to, to be a hundred percent against Perez is that he, he forced the oil companies to work people five and two, right? Five days on, two days off, regular work week. Mm -hmm. When the oil companies wanted to work people 14 and seven or 21 and seven. Yeah. Um, which meant that which was much better for them because then they wouldn't have to put people up. They wouldn't have to have any infrastructure down there. People could come from Houston and Jackson and mobile and and Biloxi and and Shreveport and wherever, right They could live they wouldn't have to move their families to Plaquemines. They could just commute, right. be out on the, you know, be out in the oil fields for a few weeks and then go home and take their money with them. Right. And Perez said, no, no, like they, those, those people become Plaquemans residents. Right. They're going to go to our schools. They're going to go mm-hmm. to our churches. They're going to pay our property taxes. Right. They're going to, you know, they're going to, they're going to work, live, worship here. Um, and, and that was really what, in, what kept that community from, you know, from what happened in so many other places in this right. country that have a lot of mineral wealth, which is that they just they get taken to the cleaners, uh, you know, by by oil companies and don't have anything to show for it. You know, right. and now Plaquemines has nothing to show for it because because the oil is mostly gone from down there and, and because Perez has been dead for 50 years and there's no one to take that place. But, you know, it's it's impossible to look at what Perez did and say that it's all uh, uh, bad, however tainted it is by the fact that he, he, uh, uh, spent, um, sort of a disproportionate amount of his political energy keeping his boot pretty firmly on the neck of of black folks down in, in, and, and his political opponents as well, who were often white.
0: Right. You know, one of the things that you really went into that I, um, I felt really deeply was the part about, and I don't know that people people who live even in the South today who are younger. I mean, I'm I'm 46 years old, so this stuff you know happened before I was born, but not that long before I was born. I mean, this was my parents' generation, um, and so I heard these stories growing up, these kinds of things, and I think one thing that people don't understand even in the South today is the origin of all of the private schools that we have in the South. We have a tremendous number of, and and we don't have as many as we used to, you know, uh, like in Louisiana, the magnet programs throughout the state have, um, have really killed a lot of those uh, high schools. But I can remember even 20 years ago when we had a significantly larger number of high schools, and all of those were created in the mid to late 60s, right? And it was for one purpose and one purpose only, and that was so that kids would not have to go to school in segregated in integrated schools. Right.
1: Yeah. And and Plaquemines Parish was a particularly um Uh, It's a pure example of 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 the of that at sort of its fullest expression, you know, and that becomes a pretty major subplot in the book. One of the one of the many things in the book that I I had no idea. I mean, I knew about segregation academies vaguely, but um, had no idea about Perez's scheme, which was essentially to not not just to to do what what had happened all over the South, which was to provide refuges for the relatively privileged uh, white parents of like middle to upper middle class households right who could pay a little bit of tuition um and 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 avoid going to uh to seg- to uh desegregated public schools right because private schools were not desegregated until uh, much later right um and uh you know so there there was at the time nothing unconstitutional about that you know but Perez had a much more <laughs> ambitious plan which was to essentially which was to take the private, take the public school system and turn that into a 100% black school mm-hmm. system, and then create through a system of tuition vouchers a a, a nominally private school system that was funded entirely, um, but indirectly through state money. And so, and he 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 laid the groundwork for that. You know, a decade mm-hmm. and a half before he ended up. Uh, or 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 better part of a de- a little more than a decade anyway before he uh sort of put it into action but it was ready to go right when the yeah. when the when the federal court order came down to desegregate Plaquemines Parish schools in 1966 there were prefabricated buildings in pieces in, in you know sort of lined out by the by the swamp ready to be thrown together to create these schools because Perez knew it was coming and the idea was not just to be a haven for a few you know, relatively well well off Plaekman's you know, residents who who didn't want to um, to share schools with with non white people. The idea was that there would be tuition free school provided by the same teachers who had been at the the public schools the year before, um, and 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 for free. Uh, paid for by by public money, just as the public schools had been, except they would be, you know, for 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 legal purposes, they would be considered uh, private schools, and you know, and that 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 began this whole. I mean, like I said, it's a subplot in the book. It just becomes it began it began this really massive, uh, carefully orchestrated campaign. To to because you had to get the teachers over to these buildings. Once you put them up, you had to get classroom materials. You had to get books. You had to get desks. You had to get all
0: this stuff. And then, like these these things don't just I mean, like they basically out they they literally robbed the public schools. To, yeah, they sure did. I mean yeah. that was that's right. I mean I I've seen this stuff before, but like you said, this is Perez Perez seemed to take everything and you know to use a a spinal tap you know analogy, cranked it up to eleven or even yeah. past eleven. You're going. Yeah. I mean as you said you, you watch some of this stuff and I'm I'm somewhere whenever I when I'm reading your book with when Perez comes up I'm somewhere between horrified about this person and almost admire him because you're like this is atrocious but wow that you know this, this took a lot of a lot of work. the amount of work that this man and the people like him put into Put into doing something that was wrong, it makes you wonder what would have happened. And then actually try to do what, put all their energies to, to good, what they could have actually accomplished.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it reminds me of a, 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 I'm a, you know, sort of some sometime, uh English professor, high school English teacher. It, it, remind, it reminds me of this line in The Great Gatsby, right? Where, where uh, Nick, the narrator, says that Gatsby has his teeth set, as it were, in an inconceivable pitch. And it's that thing of, of like, it's hard to, I mean, having seen, in detail, you know, the, having, you know, I spent, you know, weeks and weeks looking over the, the primary documents that are living in various archives around the state. Um, the, 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 just the the volume of work and the attention to detail and the brilliance of it. I mean, really the brilliance of it, um, all to, to, you know, in this, in this case, I mean, I mean, totally, uh, uh, the wrong ends, but his, he was so, tireless in his, in his work, particularly when it came to, to uh, developing, you know, clever, not even just laws, but like series of interlocking laws that did not immediately declare their purpose, but you took, you know, eight or 10 of them together and they created something and you, right. and you had to do this like detective work. And, and there, were, there were lawyers for the federal government who were down in all of the Southern states really trying to figure out, because it was not just Perez. Perez was the best and the smartest of them. And the hardest working of them, but that you know, this was all over the 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 South, really. That was it, you know, in in so many municipalities, you know, city, state, county, um, there were all of these uh, often quite brilliant segregationists who were trying to out-innovate the federal government. And so the way that they did that was by creating these series of laws that would they were not uh they were that were facially neutral as they say that is they mm-hmm. did not they did not declare their racist intent they didn't include anything about you know skin color or, or whatever in them but but clearly were intended to disenfranchise uh uh non white people and, and and black people in particular and you know and, th- and this was uh, and and somebody needed to fight those laws right so there was this army of lawyers who came down working for the government, working for as richard Sobel did for nonprofit organizations who had to come down and dismantle all of that as it was being built you know and it was it 's this real cat and mouse game gosh I remember I was on the phone uh I was on the phone uh years a couple of years ago when I was uh, fairly early in the process of the book I tracked down this this guy ray terry uh who's a uh uh, just a you know br- brilliant lawyer worked for the civil rights division of the justice department back in the 60s he was he was one of the two government lawyers who filed the suit to desegregate the schools in Plaquemines Parish and he told me this story about you know he when he first got wind of of Perez's sort of scheme to build up these, these these segregation academies this incredibly ambitious uh, uh, device that that Perez had come up with that was um you know, it had all these fail safes and it was, you know, um, a whole lot of misdirection. It was really incredibly sophisticated, you know, and he got, uh, he heard about it from some, he was a football player in college and he heard about it from some football coach he was like hanging out with who was just like, go, go check the, the like this folder in the, in the uh, property register at the courthouse. And he went down there and he saw sort of the the paper trail of it all. You know, and race back up to New Orleans to file an injunction and and uh, or petition for an injunction, and like I mean, that happened all over the South. It's just that Perez was the most tireless, the most innovative, uh, the most imaginative of uh, of this you know whole cadre of segregationists who were trying to to you know to do two things. I mean, to delay the uh, the onset of desegregation because they rightly it turned out. Uh, figured that America would get tired of uh, the civil rights movement, um, and and that attention would turn elsewhere, and that whatever gains had not been made by the time that happened would be the basis of how they would resegregate their society, which you know in, in its own particular ways has has very much been what's happened, you know, but fortunately, you know, much of the, I mean, all of the de jure segregation, you know, what was successfully um, dismantled, right. All the legal segregation and, and, and uh, a lot of gains were made in, you know, sort of breaking into at least Southern society, Um, you know, Northern society was a whole different ball game um, to, to try to, um, to force people to (laughs) come into line with, Congress and the and the Supreme Court's wishes, um, and and Perez was like the the, the um, in terms of the law uh, was probably the biggest obstacle to um, to the lawyers trying
0: to do that work. Certainly in the Deep South. So you've mentioned the lawyers. And I want to get to them in a second, but there's this, as you said, there's sort of three legs to the stool of this story. Is um, Perez and there's the attorneys Sobel. And, but there's also the defendant, yeah, who was a just a hardworking, honest, ordinary guy who, as you said, really didn't do a whole lot. I mean, he stopped to break up a fight, like, you know, you boys need to just kind of head on. I mean, I, I, can, once again, I've lived down there, I've lived up here. I, I'm hearing the conversation in my head. All right, boys, now come on. Y- y'all, y'all just need to, y'all just need to break it up. So, come on. No move, it's just it's it's okay. Back it (laughs) on. I mean, I'm seeing, I'm hearing it, and I'm also seeing exactly what the people down the road were wanting to see, right? And the lies that they told. And so, tell us a little bit about uh, our defendant.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, Gary, Gary Duncan, uh, who it was 19 at the time, um, and youngest son of a, you know, big kind of boisterous family who were, and, and this is also something that took me a while to, to kind of figure out, they were, um, you know, that, that was a family that was known as, uh, uh, you know, very independent, you know, both, both financially independent and, and sort of uh, uh, personally independent um and gary's father lambert was um was the first black man to uh run crew boat crew boats for the out to the oil rigs um, which was uh, he was able to do it as a contractor but that was technically a segregated job that he should not have been able to have you know and there's this uh, great story that gary and a number of other people told me um that that makes it into the book where uh uh, Lambert Duncan walked into the front door of a bar before bars had been desegregated, you know, and a bunch of white folks who had, had recently moved in from Mississippi and Alabama, you know, sort of got got upset about that because there was a back door that black people were supposed to use, and and the <laughs> and the owner of the bar said, "Listen, if if Lambert Duncan can't walk in the front door of this bar, I'm closing it," you know. So so it, it was a family that was very involved in the church. Lambert was a deacon at Mount Olive Missionary Baptist Church, which was one of the real centers of, um, uh, of, of the life of the, the black community in, 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 Boothville, which is the second to last town accessible by road on the Mississippi River. Um, and, uh, you know, so Gary, but Gary was the, Gary was the baby, uh, his siblings were all still alive, you know, our, uh, I think his eldest sibling is in her nineties now. Um, and, uh, yeah, just a, a hardworking man, part of a hardworking family, you know, dropped out of school at some point to go, you know, to, to- shrimp and you know whatever else he could do he was working as a tugboat captain he still works as a tugboat captain i talked to him the other day and you know you hear the, the diesel engine chugging in the background He's like gary you saw you on the boat <laughs> he's like yeah I'm on the boat he keeps saying he's gonna
0: retire he's not gonna retire people people like that don't retire no they no. just, they, I mean, just I, they just they just stay home a little more than they used to sometimes <laughs> but they don't retire <laughs> yeah listen david I, I
1: asked i asked gary once to estimate uh like how much of his life he's spent on a boat and he thought for a second, and he was kind of like, he was like, yeah, he's like, I guess around about two thirds, <laughs> you know, not of the waking hours. I mean, it right. was life. I could yeah. sleep out on that boat. And uh, I mean, the man's been, uh, you know, just a, a, a hard worker and Plaquemines was a good place to find work, um, uh, particularly at the time. It's tougher since Katrina, but you know as oil field work as agricultural work there was all kinds of yeah. stuff and it was, and it was a place where unlike in the rest of the um in the rest of the country really um and certainly different from the rest of the rural deep south i mean uh, for for a long time like blacks in plaquemines parish had had mostly owned their own land yeah um they mostly owned their own boats um and had cars and things like that i mean it was it was not i mean there, there was no real wealth down there but it, it was um, this, this is not, uh, you know, sharecropper shanty town, whatever. And, and like the, the, that, that picture is also more complicated than I think a lot of people imagine it to be, but this was one of the places in which the black community was the most entrenched and because they owned property, um, uh, they were, and, and they owned their own boats, uh, independent, you know, they could really, you know, and push came to shove, uh, you know, if you're selling shrimp on the market to to a restaurant in New Orleans, they don't care who the shrimper is.
0: Right.
1: You know, they don't care what color the, you know, they need, they need the exactly. shrimp, you exactly. know, the price is what it is. And, and so, you know, the, the oil industry offered much better paying, you know, salary jobs to to white folks, but you could make a good living if you were willing to work your butt off, uh, da- down in Plaquemines in a way that you couldn't in, I mean, really most other places in the country, regardless of the color of your skin. You know, it's one of the reasons why, and I don't go into this in the book because it's afterwards, when the, D- when the Vietnam War ended, uh, Plaquemines was one of the big uh, receiving areas for for um, refugees from 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 Vietnam when, when North Vietnam took over South Vietnam. And so, so Plaquemines now has a sizable Vietnamese population. Um, and, you know, they, they too went right into shrimping, um, mm-hmm. because, because you, cause you could, and you can make a good living that way. So that's, that's sort of Gary's, you know, Gary's background and, and, you know, just like it is a family of, of, uh, hardworking, independent, stubborn people. And, you know, so when Gary had this, you know, you know, incident on the side of the road, uh, you know, his, his mother just asked him one question, which was, did you hit that boy? And Gary said, No, I didn't hit him and mom was like, All right then. Um so, <laughs> you're, you're so not the, pleading guilty. <laughs> I
0: mean, you know, here you know, we we've all watched Law and Order and stuff like that. And what's the big deal? I mean, so he, he you know, is accused of of you know hitting a kid, but we all know you're gonna go in front of a jury and your lawyer will talk to the jury and, and show that the kid's a liar and right. it'll all be fine, right? Yeah, so the
1: you Get know couple, right <laughs> well, and there's a couple of things to say about that too, right? I mean, and and ultimately the the sort of criminal justice angle of the story has has very little, it has everything to do with Perez, of course, and it has everything to do with race, but it's not it has very little to do with Jim Crow or the Deep South, actually. And um, I'll explain what I mean in a minute. So the the deal is right. So he he uh, if he had struck this kid. Uh, he would have been guilty of breaking the law against simple battery. So, battery is is a is an unwanted and threatening touch, um, is the word for it, uh, as opposed to assault, which is like a threat of a touch. So, uh, it's a misdemeanor, right? It carries uh, you know some jail time and a fine. Um, and the thing about misdemeanors is that you um, they, they're considered minor enough that they do not activate your right to a jury trial under the Constitution. And uh, the thing of it is, in 1966, uh, the, there was no standardized definition of what a misdemeanor was. And therefore, there was no standardization of when you got a jury trial and when you didn't. Totally it, all states offered jury trials, but they didn't have to, um, not, of, not under the U.S. Constitution. And so, so and this, is, this is sort of at the heart of the case. Uh, the, so there was no jury trial, um, even though you could get up to two years in jail, uh, for, for the crime of simple battery. Um, and which is, you know, way, way out of you know, right, right now the, the rule is six months. Um, anything, anything, uh, anything over six months, you, you get a jury trial if you want one. So, so no, you don't get me. So Gary did not get the jury trial. Uh, he got what's called a bench trial. So there was a judge who heard the case. The judge was a Perez lackey. Uh, Perez had started his career as a judge, uh, and he controlled that, that courthouse. The prosecutor was Leander Perez Jr. Lee Perez, uh, the, the, the old man's son. Um, and so the, the whole thing was, was, uh, uh, I think you can say rigged, right? Um, and Gary Duncan was not going to get a fair trial, certainly not in those circumstances. And and there's, uh, you know, I don't know that he would have necessarily gotten a fairer jury trial, though he might have, um, since the jury, um, you know, juries were based on the voter rolls, which were almost entirely white. But he might have. He just needed the one juror, right, to acquit. Right. So, um, but but in any case, it, it didn't matter. You know, Richard Sobel, Gary's lawyer, uh, like any good defense attorney. Uh, saw an opportunity, which was, you know, because it's the defense attorney's job to raise any objection that might help their client. Um, and so he, you know, tried to sort of a Hail Mary pass. And uh, at the beginning of the trial, he said, you know, your honor, my client has a right to a jury trial under the uh, U.S. Constitution, um, which was not true at the time. <laughs> uh, and And the judge dismissed it, which was the right thing to do. Um, and at that point, it became a gambit to go to the U.S. Supreme Court. That was the only way that this would end, um, which, which of course, it, it ended up doing. So it worked out. But I think the deeper truth of what happened to Gary and, and his trial is that um, as much as this book is about Leander Perez and plackman's Parish and the the, idiosync- the idiosyncrasies of that, the idiosyncrasies of um uh of of this particular version of Jim Crow and what life was like down there at the time. And a lot of that has changed. Um, the criminal justice story of Gary Duncan's case is um, actually something that happens every day now. You know, it so what happened was uh, a black man was seen uh, uh, touching the arm of a, uh, you know, a white kid. Um, and there's was only, you know, four or five years between them, but, but a kid. Um, and the most important thing that happened was that there was a white man across the road who saw this and called the cops. And when a white man calls the cops on a black man, um, you know, I think we in this country have, have seen for the most part how that goes. Um and that's that's exactly what happened to Gary Duncan. He was not, you know, he was not charged with with some kind of you know felony assault or some big you know it was it was a relatively minor charge. But quite apart from the, the like just the the wrongness of it, the fact that it was based on something that didn't actually happen. You know, he never hit the this kid. Um, it it. Is has everything to do with the way that we police the behavior of black people, particularly black men. Um, and you know, it, it, I mean, it's inconceivable that a white man in Gary's position would have been would have been charged with a crime, let alone convicted. Um, and and that like that that story that happens all the time. Battery is still you know is not a Jim Crow law that's still illegal in all fifty states, probably as it should be. Um and you know and and people, mostly men, mostly young men, mostly men of color get uh, uh, get into gary 's position all the time if there 's a white person watching who calls the police you know and that's that hasn't changed at all and and gary 's case secured a really important right for those people who find themselves in that position. Um, and really for anybody who's accused of a crime in this country, um, because now you have a, a, a standardized, robust right to a jury trial. Um, but the other, the other thing about that is that, you know, since 1966, the proportion of cases that ever see a jury is a fraction of what it used to be. You know, it's and it's gone down so much for all, all sorts of reasons that I won't go into. but. Um, uh, but that have to do with, with the rise of mass incarceration and just the, the overburdening of our criminal justice system. And like, so, so, you know, paradoxically, like the, the right that Gary's case secured, um, the, this right to a jury trial is, um, less and less common in our courtrooms. Um, even as the right
0: still stands. The, um, yeah, it's there's so much there, you know, that, as you said, we're still seeing today. And that's one of the things about history is that history is not always something that's of the past. It's something that still touches us in our, our lives right now. Um, yeah, I used to joke that deja
1: vu was my my biggest occupational hazard. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, I mean, re- honestly, reading the reading the the Times Picayune from the from the 1960s, I mean, they're debating all the same mm-hmm. stuff. You know, and the, the the exact terms of it are different, but it was it was about like policing black communities, and it was about you know protesting and like at what point you know like at what point at what point does a protest become a riot? You know, who gets to say that? What do you get to do as a response? I mean,
0: it's really I mean, yeah. very very similar. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it really is. It's sort of, it's. I guess it's frustrating in many ways. It's so many ways because you want it to be better. At the same time, I think we can look and go. Well, it's nowhere near where it needs to be, but it's a little bit better than it used to be. I mean, you know, thanks to people like Gary. And yeah. now let's talk a little about the the that, the third stool there. People like Mister Sobel.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, Richard Sobel was, um, and I say was because he, he unfortunately passed away in, uh, this, this past spring, um, uh, was part of a generation of civil rights lawyers um, who were, uh, you know, sort of hit, hitting their stride right right at the time when the country really needed an army of lawyers to take on all of these civil rights cases, You know, because because essentially, what you know, the 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 legal wing of the civil rights movement in the mid-century was essentially kicked off by Brown versus Board of Education. There are a lot of people who worked really hard to get to that point, but what Brown versus Board of Education did in 1954 was it said uh you know the the you know separate but equal does not stand and and the schools and then later all public accommodations needed to desegregate well the the thing of it is there's no like there's no supreme court police force right there's nobody there was right. nobody to enforce that ruling and so it just sat there essentially for for um for 10 years and there there were a few cities and municipalities that that chose to desegregate, the couple of them that were lumped into that Supreme Court decision had to, um, but for the most part it was just ignored. You know, I mean, New Orleans desegregated famously in 1960, right? And there's this famous, famous story of Ruby Bridges, you know, going into the um, the high school. But but that was, New Orleans was the first big city to desegregate. You know, and that was six years after Brown versus Board of Education. And this is something that I, you know, I remember learning about these dates, but no, no, I I never remember a history teacher like calling it out to me that, 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 I mean, that's, that's insane. Right. right? Yeah. Can you imagine if there was a major Supreme Court rule? I mean, take anything, right. Mm -hmm. You know, major Supreme Court ruling now and like, you know, and, and the 99% of the people it applied to just, just straight up ignored it, you know, flagrantly ignored it. Um, you know, and so, so in, by 1964, uh, I'm skipping a whole lot of history that you can read in other books if you want to, but like, you know, 1964, Congress passed the Civil Rights Act, which, among other things, empowered the federal government to file lawsuits um, on behalf of, uh, of plaintiffs in the South in order to desegregate public accommodations. And that was a, that was a game changer, because the problem with civil rights work is it doesn't pay, right? Right. pays hardly nothing. And that's like the problem with that is so you're left with a couple of big nonprofit organizations that have to do all the work. And what needed to happen was there needed to be a lawsuit filed, a separate lawsuit filed in every single recalcitrant municipality, city, town, and state in the South, right, separately, right? Every school board needed to be sued,
0: every single one of them. There are thousands, right? Well, that was kind of the uh, idea, wasn't it? I mean, you know, you can't, you can't go after all of us, so you're just going to leave us alone. Yeah, exactly,
1: and and the whole idea was to wait, was to wait it out, right? That yeah. that that, but and and you know, and I think uh, for for the ones that were able to evade, uh, uh, the the um you know those those lawsuits, they were uh, you know by by the early to mid seventies, like priorities had changed, the Supreme Court had changed, um, the presidential administration had changed, and and so so there were a lot of places again, particularly in the north. Um, that got away with something that that should not have have stood, uh, but the but the Civil Rights Act was this game changer because all then you had then you had federal lawyers right? right government lawyers who were able to go down into the South to do the work that Southern lawyers were not willing or able to do themselves right and this is like so the. You know, by the time Richard Sobel went down, you know, Sobel had been like, he grew up in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, you know, (laughs) Jewish family, Uh, dad had been a, a law student at NYU, Richard was third in his class at Columbia Law School. And he got a job at Arnold Fortis Importer, now Arnold Importer, still one of the nation's most prestigious law firms in Washington, D.C., you know, corporate law firm making good money, uh, you know, mostly shuffling papers back and forth between major corporations that were suing each other. Right. And, you know, and it was just boring. (laughs) It was comfortable and boring. And, you know, he told me this great story about uh, being on vacation in Maine and listening to Martin Luther King deliver the "I Have a Dream" speech on the radio, mm-hmm. like two miles from his house in like in Washington, right? And there he was on vacation. He was like, and he and he thought to himself, "You know, who am I? You know, in this mm-hmm. fight?" And so he so he he volunteered for a few weeks one one summer, and then quit his job to go take civil rights cases in New Orleans and in doing so, like found his calling. I mean, that was basically what he did the rest of his life was, was equal employment and civil rights law. And he, um, worked alongside these, these three really brilliant radical black attorneys who had, who had been in the first, um, at, at their various law schools had been in the first integrated classes at their law schools. They were part of the first wave of black Southern local lawyers um, who were practicing law in their town? This is Collins, Douglas, and Eli, um, which was and Collins, Douglas, and Eli was was the firm that was involved in absolutely every desegregation um, effort in New Orleans uh, in the 1960s. I mean, they were right at the at the heart of it, and so Richard was was working with them. Um, to uh, because they still had to make money, right, doing mm-hmm. divorces and lawsuits and you know traffic violations and stuff like that, and so like the the civil rights stuff, which pays almost nothing is is a, was a side hustle and so richard was was able to work with them and their local expertise and their knowledge of the law. Uh, to uh, to rack up a really impressive civil rights record, it was in the middle of all of that when he was filing desegregation suits and police brutality lawsuits and getting injunctions and all of this stuff, and uh, that he sort of stumbled into Gary's case, um, which one of the very few criminal cases he took, and he just couldn't he just couldn't resist it. I mean, it was t- it was too what had happened to Gary was too wrong. And I also think, you know, Richard was 29 and I think an ambitious, and I think part of him liked the idea of going up against, uh, you know, probably the most notorious racist in the state of Louisiana.
0: Yeah. There's a certain, there's a certain, uh, gamesmanship in that. I mean, oh, yeah. as you point out in the, in the book, Perez had built a, you know, I mean, I'm not sure if he built a prison or a movie set. I mean, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's like, cool. I, I, I'm, I'm reading this and I'm like, this. If you tried to sell this to the person who's not paying attention, they go, "You're not going to be able to make this movie work. It's yeah. too unreal." I'm like, "No, no, no, sir. No, this is the real thing." Yeah, I mean, yeah. he builds this this basically prison camp out in the middle of nowhere for the purpose of putting away anybody who disagrees with him.
1: Yeah, yeah, you can still go there, Fort Saint Philip. It's on. Yeah, uh, uh, you, you have to take a boat, but uh, yeah, you can you can see it though from Fort Jackson on the other side of the Mississippi. I mean, it's really. Um, uh, but and it was it was largely a, a movie set. I mean, I think it was largely to propagandize, but he was very yeah. successful at that. There was a you know he he loved taking reporters. Over uh, around uh, Fort Saint Philip, which had, had like electrified barbed wire and, and machine gun emplacements, and I mean, you, I mean, it was all very photogenic, right? Uh, kind of like, prison a, camp stuff. And uh, Blake I mean, Shelton was, song right, or something. Yeah, yeah, for sure. My my favorite is I can't remember if this made it into the final cut of the book or not, but he uh, made a big show. of t- there were these students from from Sarah Lawrence College in uh, um, in New York. Uh, who went down and they were on some like, you know, ver- very 60s kind of, uh, yeah. you know, brotherhood, peace and understanding, kind of whatever, whatever. And, it's, and So these these college students, Yankee college students he takes them down, he like shows them around the fort, you know, pointing out the, you know, the stockades and the, you know,
0: how hard the beds are and all that stuff. And it was very, God, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, gamesmanship, showmanship is a, uh, is definitely a, uh, I won't call it a proud tradition, but it is a tradition <laughs> right down here. That's, that's for sure. Um, now, one of the things – there were several things that really sort of hit me in this. Um, I was looking at some of the notes that I had made. Um, one of them just kind of jumped out and not really it's – it's one of those – it wasn't as big a deal for the, in, the, in, the, in the overall plot of the book, but just it goes back to the old um, places you know. And when uh, Eli is up in um, Arcadia, Louisiana – yeah. With the cattle prods being shown to them, uh, that's that's the parish seat where I, you know, the parish where my mom's family's from, where I spent mm-hmm. my teenage years. I've been yeah. in that courthouse, so it's yeah. like you know, it's, it's one of those things. Like I see this, and and you know, once again, it goes back to that. It's it's very hard for a lot of people who I think particularly those who were young, because I don't think it, it's it, as you said you know, you you hear about this. And I do too. I mean, I heard about these things. And even though they were taught to me by people, it's like anything else. I mean, World War II, even though I talked to men who fought in World War II, it's kind of this weird thing in the past. Right. And um, you know, the present is the present. And of course, you have, we have to remember that the students who are in college right now weren't born when the Twin Towers fell. Right. So how how one one generation's you know, powerful memories is another generation's. Um, that's what Dad said. Yeah, but it just wasn't. And I you think about these things how they just weren't that long ago. I mean, they were not. They don't. They don't predate our own times by that much. And it se- it just seems almost. It seems almost unreal. Sometimes it's like stepping into a movie set, even though you know we were there. But um, the the story, of course, in your in the book when Sobel is. Then charged with practicing without a license, which I thought was one of the most disingenuous things. And I mean, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking, it, it, it was almost—I don't know—it's kind of hard to say what it's like. I mean, Leander Perez was, as, as we pointed out, he was good even when he was evil. He was good at it. Yeah. His yeah. son just seemed so, so uh, third rate at this. Yeah, like I mean, because Louisiana recognized the right of an attorney. To work, you know, for other attorneys, you know, as as, as a you know, as long as they were attached to attorney of record, that was right. that was that was all that was. Something Louisiana recognized there was never a chance in the world they were ever going to get him in too much in trouble unless it was just a completely rigged situation.
1: Yeah. Was, although, although it was, you know, it ended up being. I think it ended up being closer than. Um, I, I don't think they would have gotten. Um, Sobel. And I remember, so I remember reading a lot of correspondence about this and I spent, you know, a disproportionate amount of my time reading the the files of the Lawyer's Constitutional Defense Committee, which is the nonprofit organization that funded uh, Richard Sobel's work in the South. And, you know, so just letters back and forth about all of this stuff and, you know, tens of thousands of pages of it. And, um, you know, one, one of the things that was That was true about that is that they uh, they they needed so it took somebody like Perez to to sort of to force the issue and want to want to arrest so it was such a Perez way of intimidating someone right like he was he was not going to show up with a you know a a gun or a club or a cattle prod or whatever and Mm -hmm. do it like that it was going to be with the law I mean that was how he worked and you know and so he 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 developed an argument saying that Sobel was practicing law without a license you know Sobel was did not have a license to practice law in Louisiana he was associated counsel with with Collins Douglas and Eli and that was that was the that was the sort of legal you know uh, procedure through which he was practicing in Louisiana and he'd been doing that for years and um and other lawyers have been doing it for years and nobody had ever questioned it but that that was uh like in terms of the innovations of of Jim Crow and the delay tactics, I mean, that that was sort of, there's a a lot of indication in correspondence among segregationists that that was going to be the new strategy. Sobel was the second lawyer arrested for practicing law without a license in the deep South. There was a, there was a lawyer, Don Jelinek, who was arrested in Alabama. Um, And he, that case was dropped when he left the state. So, so actually, so like, the, the confrontation didn't happen there, but, but the segregationists got what they wanted, which was a civil right. rights lawyer leaving. And so that was the idea with Sobel was to tie up his case in court, um, enough to make it not worth his while. Right. And frankly, like to, to be a waste of the nonprofit organization he worked for, wasted their money. Mm-hmm. And so, cause he wasn't able to do the work when this case was pending a lot of the time. So, so like it was actually like th- they were trying out a tactic that would have been had it been successful devastating to right. the fight for civil rights in the South because uh, because then then you know some large number of this army of lawyers who had gone down after the Civil Rights Act had been passed would um, would have would have probably needed to go home and they would have needed to find Southern lawyers willing to do that work and like the black lawyers who ended up yeah. taking that that work up in the seventies were still in law school or college right. at the time because those had just been desegregated in those States. So like there, and there weren't enough white lawyers who were willing to do that work. So, so like there was this um, we were in a, there was a really delicate period there where um, had Perez succeeded, even if not legally in the lawsuit against Sobel um, at if, if, if Perez had succeeded in driving Richard Sobel well, out of the state of Louisiana just for practical reasons. right then, I, then it is quite clear that there would have been lawsuits filed in every state in the deep south against every independent northern lawyer who was down there doing civil rights work um, in order to, again, not, not necessarily win the suit but to drive them out. And delay, right? Because that, that was the whole
0: game. And if you said, and the so, delaying tactic was the was the whole thing. I mean, keep keep yeah. keep delaying, keep delaying. People will get tired of all the civil rights stuff and yeah. um, and move on.
1: Yeah, and that which is why that that case, which again is is another thing that I, I mean, I was sort of vaguely aware of it when I started work on on the book, but um, really becomes in some ways a centerpiece. It becomes it's much more suspenseful. You know, from the point of view of the story, the the Supreme Court case is, right? The Supreme Court case is super important, but in some ways, the stakes for the people involved were much higher in that that lawsuit, Sowell versus
0: Perez, right? And you bring in uh, a character in that one, and I know it sounds, it sounds kind of like a novel, but you, but you know, in some ways, once again, these are these are very novelistic type stories. Yeah, it's, they're, the, they're the difference sometimes between a John Grisham novel and a work of history is not as much as some people might think. Except that Grisham tends to end a little bit, sometimes ends a little happier than real life, and sometimes not. <laughs> yeah. But. Um, but there, and, I, and my, for some reason, I, I didn't. I, I didn't catch it in my notes. The name of the attorney who came in to get Sobel out of jail, Don Juno, inst- yes, who instantly became one of my favorite people. Yeah, 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 yeah. You and me both. Be, um, like, I I never met
1: him. Unfortunately, he passed away shortly before I started work on the book. But uh, yeah, Don Juno was a character. I mean, yeah, you know, C- Cajun guy. From, yeah, uh,
0: laughing at somewhere, and and, and, and
1: uh, I, uh, yeah, the man was just a,
0: a firebrand. I, I, tell, I tell people, you know, don't dismiss it. He, once again, when you see him in the movies, those weird, loud, um, sort of obnoxious liberal lawyers who from mm-hmm. the South who don't mind getting right up in the face of the sheriff and, and cussing at him about yeah. something, those guys really did exist. And they were really that – that uh, and it, it, they were characters because you had to be.
1: Yeah,
0: I mean if, if you were going to pull off something like that. If you're gonna drive into Leander Perez's territory and basically bombast your your client out of jail, you had to be willing to go all in from the minute you got there. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, um, yeah.
1: No, I mean I think in a lot of ways, like the the Richard Sobel Don Juno one-two punch was uh, you know, particularly in the uh, in a, I mean, in a lot of cases that, frankly, I didn't have time to cover in the book. I mean, the the two of them together, I mean, Sobel was so serious and disciplined and focused, and and you know, for the most, you know, pretty quiet too. Right. Um, and Juno was such a, a you know a hurricane of a person. Um, yeah. That the, the the between the two of them, they they um, they were forced to be reckoned with.
0: This is, the, this is the second book in a week where I've told people – I've told the author that um, I really hope that somebody at the – at some place like Netflix gets a hold of your story <laughs> and develops it because I, th- I think – well, unfortunately, I mean I would love everyone to read your book. Yeah. but we know people more people watch tv shows than uh, than read books a lot of times Sure, uh, and of course one can lead to the other i mean you know there's yeah. a lot of times uh, the book can explode i said but this is a story that i would you know it's it needs that netflix sort of miniseries yeah. treatment because there's so many there's so many characters in it i mean it's not it, these are yeah. you're fascinating people it's a fascinating story and yeah um, and it's
1: and it's sort of cinematic in, in yeah. its own way and, and one one of the things that was a real uh, you know, I was really lucky with it. Rarely in his, in real history do you wind up with a story that's that like self contained in just a couple of years, right? And the story right. goes basically October sixty six to May of sixty eight. You know, and that that just doesn't happen that often in real life, especially with the law, uh, which tends to move pretty slowly. I, I should say too that uh, there. So there 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 is a documentary film that's been made um, based on the uh, based on the book and based on the same story. Oh, excellent. Um, and, uh, it, it actually just, uh, it's had, had its world premiere a week ago today at, uh, doc NYC, which is the New York city documentary film festival. And is, it is actually is, is now right now, uh, at the new Orleans film festival, oh, wow. um, and which you can watch online or, or in new Orleans, I think there's some drive-in drive-in okay. uh, spaces. So, um, uh, so that's, it's called the, the name of that film is a, is a crime on the bayou. Okay. Um, by by Nancy Bersky who's a, a really wonderful award-winning filmmaker who's uh, sort of the third in a trilogy of movies she's made about
0: uh, about race and the civil rights movement so um, I'm guessing it will it'll eventually work its way to Amazon Prime and uh, yeah I sure hope so I think, re- I think I think they're still
1: <laughs> in early days of, of right. figuring out distribution and stuff but um, but it's it's a really it's a really beautiful film and I, w- I was really I was lucky to be able to, to be That's there wonderful. for a lot of the um, sort of initial uh, work and for the interviews with Gary um, and and the and Nancy the, the filmmaker and I and I have a, have a you know re- really like an unusually good relationship for I think that can sometimes be a little bit fraught you know an author and filmmaker working on the same story especially because she started work on it before i was done with the manuscript of the book mm-hmm. but um uh but but she she's uh it is her own take on the story for sure but it's a uh it's a really beautiful
0: film so so i ur- urge wonderful. you and your, your listeners to check it out definitely i will we'll be uh, talking about that as it uh as it gets out there and uh people can can go see it yeah. um well, I mean, I've, I've kept you for a long time here, and it has been a wonderful conversation. Um, fascinating topic. Uh, I just – I can't tell people enough how much they need to go see this. Uh, a couple things before you go. I mean, one thing – okay, one thing I I, I think I, I will post it in the – when I do the book review, and that is – and I may post it in the, in the show notes as well. One of the things you talked about was – uh, that I got a kick out of was Leander Perez – Deciding he could go one on one with William F. Buckley, <laughs> right? Which yeah, was I, which. The minute I the minute I read that, right. of course, I'm, I'm listening. To, I'm reading the book, and of course, I'm a big I'm a big William F. Buckley fan. So I'm I'm reading Buckley's words in Buckley's yeah. voice in my head. Oh yeah, just, of course. that's Great. The video great. is yeah, actually out there on uh, it's YouTube. on YouTube. Oh yeah, yeah. It is on YouTube, and you can see Buckley rolling his eyes <laughs> and looking just completely disgusted. I'm like, usually he's better than that about the about. Containing himself, but he just, he just yeah. didn't give a damn about, about Brianna Perez. <laughs> and uh, that was a wonderful scene. But, um, so, I, yeah, the hardest thing for
1: me about writing that, that, that chapter was, was, uh, figuring out what to cut. Cause it's, if you do watch it, okay. is, it's just on YouTube, right. And which yeah. is where I found it. And it, it is, it is such a good, I mean, you could have you written, know, I could have written a chapter 10 times as long that' just, just, just a transcript of, yeah. of the whole thing. It's really riveting.
0: Um, so real quick, uh, you were telling me at the beginning that you know one of the things you do is uh, Shakespeare in Prison. I know it's a little bit different, but I'm I'm, still, I'm curious about this because I saw a little bit about it on your website. I kind of wanted to just tell us a little bit about it. what what is this?
1: Yeah, so so Shakespeare in Prison is uh, is the signature community program of Detroit Public Theater, which is a um, nonprofit. Professional theater here in the city of Detroit, and uh, I've been going since uh, since 2012. Um, and so, what we do is we go into prisons here in, in Metro Detroit, and particularly into the women's prison, um, Michigan's women's prison, which is nearby, uh, sort of our home base. And over the course of a um, you know roughly. Nine month season, we uh, read and discuss and rehearse and perform a full play of Shakespeare, Um, and it is uh, it's largely about um, not not about theater or not about Shakespeare. Shakespeare is a particularly good conduit to what we're actually after, which is a lot about you know personal growth and empowerment. Um, And one of the things about theater that's so good at that um, particularly for people who have been really profoundly disempowered is that it 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 provides this, this really strong sense of community um, requires people to work together and to trust each other. The, the, you know, the language of Shakespeare is uh, um, pushes back pretty equally against just about everybody. Nobody has an easy time with it. Right. So it's not like some, some people are, um, it, it's actually so, like, uh, it is, it, it's sort of this great equalizer where every, everything from our, our college educated, um, you know, ensemble members to, to folks who have little or no formal education, which, which is who the plays were written for, um, uh, you know, struggles just about equally with the language of it. Um, but once you break through the language of it. Um, you know, you have these really indelible characters and situations through which, like, both the performing and the putting together of a play, the sort of operational side of things, um, and also through the, the reading and examining of the text um, and embodying a character yourself, um, you know, we find that it just has really incredible outcomes for our participants' uh, sense of self-worth and sense of, of agency in the world, Um and, you know, and really for, for a lot of the folks we work with, it's the first time in a long time, if ever, that they have worked to, together with other people to build something that they can be really proud of. Um, sure and knows. that's uh, so we, we've worked with about 300 people at this point. Um, and obviously, we haven't uh, we haven't been able to be in person in prison for uh, for many months now. Right. Um, Michigan's prisons in particular were hit really hard. Early on, um, and so those those folks are still basically locked down, um, and uh, you know, and that's that's been difficult for us. But we also, at this point, we have a large community of of alums, uh, former ensemble members who live all over the state and all over the country, and uh, so we we have for several years now had, had an alumni program, which does everything from, you know, we can, if they're interested in doing work in the performing arts space, we can help them find jobs and internships and stuff like that to, to just being, you know, honestly, a lot of what we do is just like be, be there as people who know them um, as their best selves um, and, you know, with, with whom they have a, we are, we are people with whom they have an uncomplicated relationship. Um, And sometimes that's all they need is just someone to talk to who um, isn't, you know, family or spouse or, you know, kids or whatever, you know, things that are that are complicated like that, just to um, just to be there to support them. And so we've been um, we've been able to do that, as well as kind of running a correspondence course, essentially, with a lot of our former members who are uh, still locked up. So, so yeah, that that Shakespeare in Prison. So, I'm, I'm the assistant director. Um, started as a volunteer in 2013, um,
0: and kind of, kind of never looked back. And then here, here we are. Um, that's, that's really awesome, man. That's really awesome. I'll, I'll put the uh, links to the nonprofit in the uh, show notes as well. And you know, folks, go out there and donate to this kind of thing. We, they, they de- need, they need the funds. And anybody who's making a difference, that's what that's what, what this is all about. In some ways, that kind of just does bring us. All the way around, because you know how do we how do we go from a world of Leander Perez setting up electric barbed wire prison camps with machine gun nests to trying to change people's lives with Shakespeare who were in prison? And how you know in our own times, you know, I mean, there's as you as you point out, there's lessons for us today. You know, we're still fighting mass incarceration. We're still fighting uh, for for people who really don't belong in prison ending up in prison because we have not figured out one way or the other, how to fix some problems in our society that helps people before they end up there. Because what we'd really like to be able to do is make sure people don't end up in those positions. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, we're not very good at that. No, but I hope that, uh, anyone who, who listens to this will go out and buy the book and, uh, you could get a you, you know I always point out the Kindle deal because I I don't have a, my wife won't let me buy any more books unless I get rid of some <laughs> I I got to I got to get rid of books before I can buy new books so yeah, uh, yeah. but uh, you know the K- Kindle has their special deal you buy the Kindle book you get the auto, the audio book for us a, for a, a reduced price yeah so and I, sh- a- I
1: should say too a shout out to the to the narrator of the audio book who's fantastic yes um, yes very well and, and lo- local Louisiana. Louisiana guy. I mean, lives in Georgia now or something. But but yeah, I I really, really, really pleased with with the work he
0: did. Because these are amazing characters, and uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly all deserve to have their stories told. Uh, Some so we don't. Some we don't want to forget because we don't ever want them to rise again. And some we don't want to forget because what, what they've done for us. And um, thank you so much for writing this, for bringing these people back to life, uh, bringing these stories back up, because that's what we need. So, Matthew, thank you so much for being on the show. It was my pleasure, David. Yeah, thank you so much. You bet. Wow, thanks so much to Matthew for coming on and talking about his book it really is a great book folks this is the holiday season great time to be buying books this is a great book for any history lover i hope that you'll pick up the book i hope that you will check out his shakespeare in prison page maybe make a donation over there don't forget to subscribe to this podcast leave a five-star rating your ratings and your subscriptions really do help me to find more guests to come on the show You can leave comments on our page over at historia.substack.com. There you will find book reviews and a whole lot more coming in the next year. This is the holiday season. Next week I plan to have an episode dedicated to books that I've read this year. And after that, we'll have to see. It all depends on what the season brings. So thank you very much for taking your time and joining us. I hope to hear from you again soon. Thanks a lot, everybody.